This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and on today's episode we are covering films we watched during the Vancouver Queer Film Festival. The festival is now in its 33rd year after starting out in 1988. It is billed as the second largest film festival in British Columbia and Western Canada's largest queer arts event. This year, the festival will remain mostly online with a few in-person events for people living in the Vancouver area. Joining me today to talk about the movie scene is Stephanie Pryor, who was last heard on episode 149, Oscar Productions 2021. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for joining me. Hey, I, yeah, it's been a hot minute. It has been, yeah. I yeah. need to get you back on. So today we are talking about some of the movies that we watched during this year's festival, uh, which we both watched three of them, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to share some of our thoughts on that. I guess, uh, first thing, do you have any thoughts about the festival in general? Were you enjoying the types of movies that we ended up watching? Did they appeal to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, this is my first time uh, attending this festival, so it was kind of exciting to see what was there to and what was like being offered, and I think I learned a lot. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I was I was very impressed with it too, and you know, I love a good portal for a film festival, and, and this mm-hmm. webs, this festival had a great portable portal, so I'm very happy with yep. that because <laughs> uh, there's too many festivals that don't put enough effort into their back end. So kudos to them, and thank you for making it very user accessible. So that all said, let's uh, talk about the first movie we watched, and the first one was Raw Uncut Video. It has exclamation marks, so maybe I should be like, Raw, Uncut, Video, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was directed by Ryan A. White and Alex Clausen. Palm Drive found good-looking people that were into some of the wildest, weirdest things. They're among the best filmmakers in the leather community. Yes, I see how it's porn, but also see how you could like take this to the Whitney and put this in the avant-garde film section because it works both ways. So this is the story of a gay porn company. It's a documentary about gay porn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I knew going in, I was like, all right, I bet you they're going to show clips, but you see a lot oh, of yes. clips. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this was actually, this is probably my favorite movie watched during the festival because despite the fact that it's a documentary about gay porn, uh, it was surprisingly sweet and tender as well. Yeah, it was a good mix, I think. It was, mm-hmm. it was, war- it was needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the couple who started Palm, Palm, Palm Drive, Drive Video, yes. Yeah, they're just like the sweetest mm-hmm. and so, like, I love their love story also, like couple goals you yeah. know like it's crazy <laughs> but yeah um you see a lot in this yes a lot so uh people who who might not like super explicit content i would uh advise you staying away from it but uh that said if you can get past some of the moments that even i had to kind of flinch and turn my head away from this was a really great movie like mm. it's so funny this movie opens up with uh this this older couple they're like tending their farm and cleaning up their house and all this sort of stuff and then we get this like love story background for them about how they met at a harvey milk birthday party years ago back in the 70s and how they're icons in the queer community and then we like get the clips of what they did to make themselves icons and yeah. it, it's really fascinating i really i really enjoyed this one I feel like I feel like what was most interesting is the concept of even even something as adult explicit 
material that this content even has a place in anthropological uh, studies where we learned one of the one of the talking heads in the documentary is a, is a porn historian and they're and they're talking about how documenting how queer people express themselves is something that needs to be studied and needs to have records of being kept because it's it's not something that's often discussed about and so every once in a while there'll be like a new you know scholarly study and there'll be like some writer talking about how they realize, oh, and then this is this is this type of person was living in, in this time period and this is what we can understand about their lives and how it affected things and what was it like for an everyday person, not just, you know, kings and queens and, and rich people. Right. And so and so I think that was just like a very fascinating concept when they were talking about the idea of of preserving these films not just for uh, an erotic enjoyment standpoint, but to also study how did the queer community evolve over time and how were they expressing themselves? Because that is is something that, you know, there aren't always records of and it's something that's important. It's almost like, um, I remember reading this story about how there is this, I believe it was a woman who is this hoarder and she had like in her house just like literally stacked floor to ceiling everywhere, video VHS tapes but what she was doing was just literally recording all day, every day, her TV and saving it. And then they realized later on that so much of what she was recording was literally the loss of time. So all the commercials, news stories, things like that, where it was just such a, a great way to be able to study how media has changed and what was being documented at the time. And and on the surface, you, you think, well, that's just stupid. It's just commercials and, and TV what does that mean? It's just one person's daily live, but it actually kind of has a, a bigger purpose. And so I think this was also kind of in the same way, whereas like it has a much bigger purpose of if you were to build a museum of queer expression of, of art in lovemaking and pornography and everything like that, this definitely has to have a section, even if it's something that you don't necessarily agree with or enjoy watching or things like that. Yeah. I, well, there's like, a direct correlation between what's happening in the times and what is happening in the, the gay porn industry. So like, you know, with the AIDS crisis Mm -hmm. and having, having an outlet for safe sex. And a lot of these videos were um, like just solo um, performers. performers. And so that's like in direct correlation, what was going on during the time and around them and what it meant to, to have safe, safe sex and also have an outlet to, to feel safe enough in your own home and not feel judged and all the stuff that was going on. So there's a lot, it's not just about the content, but also telling a story about what else is happening in the world at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. And they, and they really talk about how the AIDS crisis was affecting the industry and, and, specifically gay men in general about how they were terrified to have new sexual partners and date Mm -hmm. and things like that because it could be something that could be a potential death sentence for a lot of people at the time because the the disease still wasn't very understood it was understood who is impacting and why it was impacting different people and things like that but with the government's complete refusal to even acknowledge it was it was just a huge blight on the country and so many people needlessly died because they refused to do any sort of studies into how to how what was happening with the disease and why it was affecting people and how they could help people with that are afflicted by this and stuff like that but yeah yeah 
it really all kind of comes back to to Jack and Mark, the two owners of Palm Drive Video, because they're just such interesting figures where every time they're talking, you're just like so fascinating. You're like, yeah. please tell me more about <laughs> your adult videos that you were making. Like you can just imagine being at like a, a dinner party or something like that and be like, everyone else be quiet. Let the porn guys talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, there's more to them than just being the porn guys. I think, you know, one um, was the the master behind the photography and the the directing, and one was behind the editing and all the the graphics and stuff. And I think, you know, just their dynamic and and what they brought to the table and to the industry. It wasn't just about you know making explicit videos. I think they had a purpose and a content, and they had a general like love for their community. And it it was much more than just adult films. I mm-hmm. think, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think. I also really appreciated all the interviewees they also got. So mm-hmm. there's, there's just, there's people that were like, I mentioned earlier, there's the, the, the porn historian who is a female who talked about how clearly this content is not for her, but she appreciates what it was doing. And that's why she was working on helping to preserve it as well. But there's lots of interviews with men who were stars of these films and their stories are so interesting because they're now, you know, 20, 30 years removed from doing these and they can kind of look back and, and be like, hey, remember when I was young and hot? This is what I did. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like a, a nice trip down memory lane for them. And of course, the best guy that interviewed this is the straight guy <laughs> with his mom sitting next to him, just absolutely Meaning. so proud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was a good one. And he's like, Yeah, I'm not telling any of my straight friends. I'm not telling my kids about this. And his mom's like, Why? Why why aren't you proud of this? He's yeah. like, Well, you know, it's still porn. <laughs> well, it is, but I like I thought that was a good question. Like I loved that. I thought it was a little weird about how proud, proud she was and that they were watching these, you know, videos together. But, you know, she made a comment. She's like, how many of your straight friends would have done this? And mm-hmm. he's like, none. And I think that, you know, proves so much more masculinity than, you know, making fun of it or like shying away from it, not doing it. The fact that he, you know, was like secure enough to do it. And he should be proud of that. Like, what does it matter who who gets enjoyment out of it? Mm-hmm. Like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that that she made that comment. Yeah. So I would I would absolutely recommend this documentary to other people if they are comfortable watching such explicit content because it, it is so fascinating. Like, it's one of those things where it's like if you enjoy you know any sort of history about people who are often not covered by history, this is a great example of of a very clear snapshot from the 80s to the 90s of what was happening to a group of people that weren't really being covered by uh, mainstream media or having their niches being produced by any other company. So yeah. it's two people being like, well, if no one's going to make content for us, then we might as well make it ourselves. Sort yeah. Of thing. And I think something else that's, that we haven't mentioned yet is that these performers were, they weren't professionals. No. These were people that they found, you know, at festivals or on the street or mm-hmm. through, you know, word of mouth and even through popularity later, later on, like getting uh, letters from people who, who wanted to be part <laughs> yeah. of it because they weren't, you know, your traditional, like buff, beautiful. I mean, they are beautiful for sure, but like just, that like typical model type mm-hmm. porn actor. These were average guys who had particular fetishes that didn't feel like their market was being or wasn't out there. So it was also important just to, to showcase and highlight every body type, every person, every niche. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like 
sexy sex. It was, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was specifically geared towards someone mm-hmm. uh, who didn't feel like they were being like noticed or had anything out there for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was a definitely a underappreciated aspect of, of the film for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, so up next we're going to talk about our next film that we watched, and that is Workhorse Queen, which was directed by Angela Washcomb. The biggest inspiration for me creating Mrs. Kasha Davis is emulating my mom. I started doing drag later in my life, and looking at the gay world, we didn't necessarily fit in. We wanted to have the home, the pool, the kids, this life that we had previously with our ex-wives. So I always wanted to be a full-time performer. And I realized at the age of 44, it's not too late. Going on RuPaul's Drag Race, I just felt like this is going to be a whole new adventure, a whole new life. So this is a documentary that uh, tells the story of Mrs. Kasha Davis, who is a drag queen who appeared on if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, season seven, I believe so. season seven of RuPaul's Drag Race and Ed Popple, the man behind Mrs. Kasha Davis is a bit of an older drag queen compared to most of the contestants that appear on Drag Race show. And so it's kind of him dealing with trying to realize his dream at an age past where most of the other contestants are and where does he go from there? And then, so we get the background of how he was, you know, first came out and then how he slowly came into drag and how he worked on his, his persona and aspect and then his time on drag race and then his post drag race career, which has, you know, the usual ups and downs of celebrity, if you want to sort of call it that. Um, did you remember Mrs. Kasha Davis before we started? Yes. Yeah. Yeah? Definitely. I mean, as a huge drag race fan, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, after so many seasons too, it's hard to remember all of them, especially by name, but I definitely remembered Mrs. Kasha Davis. Yeah. Because she had Uh her her famous catchphrase. Mm -hmm. There's always time for a cocktail. Mm -hmm. Um, so was she someone that you were sort of a fan of or was she just like, Oh yeah, that was just one of the contestants I remember. Oh no, no. Yeah, no, I did appreciate her. And like, she was, she was, um, like a funny queen and someone, you know, who didn't go out, who went off earlier. So you didn't get to see too much, of what she had to offer. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it always sucks because I hate those first few episodes because you feel so shortchanged with some of the Queens where you're like, Oh, I, I want to see more. I want to know what mm-hmm. else they can do. Cause it's just such a shame to like make it there and then only be there for a few episodes. Yeah. They do one mistake yeah. and they're off. And it's like, well, that could have been anyone's mistake at yeah. any time during the show, but it yeah. just so happened it was the first episode. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So this, this was a very interesting documentary because I wasn't familiar with Popple or Mrs. Kasha Davis. So it was Mm -hmm. all new to me to kind of find that out. And so it was, it was really interesting for me to just learn who this person was and, and sort of their, their entrance into the drag world and, and sort of what sort of uphill battle battles someone might have that came to the art form, both at a later age than than most, but also because she's been doing it for so long and of her age earlier 
in the in the scene before it really became a big mainstream sort of thing. Right. Um, she was already a, a drag queen performing when the first season started. And so after that first season air, she started auditioning from the second season every year until she finally got cast in, in season seven. So she's someone that has been around for, for quite a while and has seen how the industry has changed specifically because of this TV program. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I talked about it in, in my review about it, which I'm going to link to all my reviews in the, in the show notes as well, where there are many drag queens who are now household names, whether or not you watch the show or not. Like people know who, who Shangela is mm-hmm. uh, or Trixie Mattel or like, like there's, there's probably about four or five queens who have like permeated pop culture outside of that TV show. Right whether it's, you know, because of their actual touring performances or their roles in, in movies and TV shows, you know, being talk show hosts on YouTube and on TV and stuff like that. Just in general, performers, people know this. So it's, so it's just so fascinating to sort of see the impact on popular culture has. And I appreciate it in the documentary that we get some behind-the-scenes footage of, of Drag Race that I'm sure probably isn't, out there for other people like you kind of see like there's there's a uh, a clip where we see miss cash davis when she gets eliminated and she does her goodbye on the runway and then walks off stage and then we see a camera angle of like behind the set of her walking off the stage and like uh someone like crew members helping her off the set and, and out of the 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 um, the studio uh, to go back to the changing rooms and like stuff like that. I find very fascinating because it sort of, it really breaks that fourth wall of like, Oh, this is all fake sort of thing. And so it was <laughs> nice to sort of see that in, in a little bit of interesting aspects. Um, did you feel that you really kind of learned who Mrs. Kasha Davis was and did it make you change your opinion at all on her while watching this movie? Yeah. I mean, I think it was nice to see a little bit more um, into who she is, who she was and where she came from. And I always like, you know, learning how people got into drag and um, it's so funny, like seeing the drag world feels quite large when you think about all the different areas and queens, but it's actually, it can be quite a small community. So Mm -hmm. like seeing her and her friends being like Darian Lake and um, Pandora Pandora Box Box, and like other people who have also been on Drag Race, you're like, oh my gosh, I know her. Oh, I know her too. Mm -hmm. And it was just like oh, that's, that's interesting. I didn't know that they were like friends. And so it was also kind of interesting to learn that. But then like on the flip side, um, other friends of theirs who haven't been on the show, it, it seems like it puts a real divide between the, the RuPaul drag race queens and the non drag race queens and kind of creating two different, I don't want to say clicks, but like casts almost. Yeah. So like, the ones who haven't been on the show feel kind of like they can't relate as much anymore to mm-hmm. their friends and they kind of miss just being their friend group and not being the non-drag race mm-hmm. member of the troupe. So mm-hmm. that was kind of sad. There, I feel like there was a lot of different sad and touching moments about like in this film that weren't necessarily directly um, about uh, Mrs. Casha Davis, but like her friend group and other people who who have been trying year after year to get on the show or you know they're the ones who who are part of the group like i mentioned but nobody really knows them because they haven't been on the show and uh but then also of course also with uh with popple's life and what he had to go through and the different aspects of post drag 
race life and mm-hmm. what that means when you, you you're on that high, you're doing the tours and then it starts trickling out and you're like, well, now what? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it seemed interesting where he was sort of talking about how now when you do shows, if there are drag race contestants on the bill, that's who are people are going out to see. And they almost don't care that there are other people, um, also on the show. So they'll, yeah. they'll be talking about how they do meet and greets and, and stuff like that. And, you know, they all want a picture with the drag race contestant, but mm-hmm. everyone else sort of gets ignored. Whereas before drag race became a thing, it was very much about, Oh, you there, you see the performer, you can take your picture with them. You're enjoying that. Whereas yeah. now it's almost like, Oh, I don't, Oh, you're doing a group photo. Okay. I guess so. But otherwise I don't really want a photo with yeah, you. That sort I don't of know thing. You. Yeah. Nobody else knows you. Yeah. And then, it, yeah, then it becomes almost like a, will my Instagram picture, mm-hmm. you know, mean anything if I include someone that isn't famous sort of thing, right. like yeah. that, that sort of BS. Um, I found, you know, th- this movie is very interesting getting such an inside look at someone's life and, and it's so such an intimate portrayal. And we learn about, you know, Ed's battle with alcoholism and how he has to reinvent his character who his tagline is about drinking and how does he still have an act where that's basically the whole shtick is this is, you know, a 1950s style housewife who really likes her wine mm-hmm. or her martinis. And now that Ed is sober, how can he reconcile Mrs. Casher Davis's enjoyment of alcohol with Ed's sobriety? And so that was a very interesting sort of thread going on of, of that inner battle that he had to face in order to come out on top. And I feel like basically like every comedian does is when you have issues in your life you sort through it on stage that that's your therapy sort of thing and you know you can make jokes about yourself and laugh at yourself that way and that's you helping to to process the trauma and the emotion that you're going through and i think he did a a pretty good job of making that transition uh and being able to own his mistakes whereas i feel like a lot of people maybe he would have tried to talk about how he still you know, there's a difference between Mrs. Casher Davis and, and Ed Popple where, you know, it's a character and, you know, Mrs. Casher Davis will drink, you know, um, non-alcoholic wine or martinis or something like that, not tell the crowd and still kind of, you know, be the bumbling drunk sort of thing. But he fully admits to who he is and that allows Mrs. Casher Davis to also grow as yeah. a character yeah. for him as well. Yeah. But I think my main criticism of this movie is towards the end of the movie, it kind of became apparent that this was an audition tape to be on all stars drag RuPaul's drag race, all star season right. three or whatever, four, whatever is the next drag race season. Because, you know, as, as the main character of the movie, he has the option to talk about certain things and not talk about certain things. And probably, help direct the directors and editors over what's most important. And it just sort of seemed that as the movie was going on, it just sort of really felt like, Oh, this is, you know, hoping that this movie is popular enough that the producers will be like, well, we have to include Mrs. Kasha Davis. Now she's really popular. So I don't know how you felt about that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely noticed the switch, um, a little ways through, especially when, um, they're at, drag con i believe it is mm-hmm. and a fan comes up and is like i really think you should be on all stars he's like mentions like yeah me too like yeah it, it seemed 
And then from that moment on, it just seems to keep popping up like, mm-hmm. oh, I should be an all-stars. Oh, I want to get on all-stars. Or And so it became apparent after that fact. And I think that's also where it kind of lost me because I was more interested in learning, you know, um, Popple's story and the way it affected like her group and herself and her relationships and, and less about how they were, she was going to get back onto RuPaul, especially since it seemed like the first half was about how being on Ru- RuPaul can have kind of a negative impact. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then it was like, but I still want to be on it again. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Yeah. It's a, it's like this weird drug that they're addicted to because you know, the, the, you're talking about the friend who is also trying to get on the show and isn't being as successful. Aggie Dune, I believe mm-hmm. was her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, also sort of similar to, Mrs. Kasha Davis' story where she's a bit older compared to most of the contestants who are usually in their early 20s and then, you know, there'll be like yeah. one 30-year-old contestant being they're the old queen sort mm-hmm. of thing on the show um, who's been trying out since season one, since before even Ed was trying out to get on the show. And, you know, this is how many seasons have there been now? 12, 15, 32? I can't even remember. I don't even know. But it sounds like basically every single season, Aggie Dune has auditioned and sent in a tape and now has become so jaded and bitter about it, but can't stop submitting tapes. Right. And like, that's the... Like, that's one of the things where I'm like, wow, like, I almost feel like you need to sort of re-examine what your priorities are as a performer. Are you doing this because you think this is the only path forward to have a career? Are you doing this because you genuinely want to? Are you doing this out of spite now? So it became a bit of an interesting dichotomy that I'm not too sure what the purpose of it was, but it definitely was kind of tragic and a little bit sad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But overall, you know, I think if you are a drag race fan, I think there's plenty that you'll probably enjoy, especially the sort of behind the scenes aspect. And like, you know, when she was at the the drag con and you see like uh, Alaska Thunderfuck and, mm. you know, and talking about how tired she is, <laughs> how she needs to lay down right away. And uh, I think she was kind of being a bit of a bitch. Yeah, a little bit too. Moment. Yeah. She's like, oh, you. OK. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's, you know, if you're a drag race fan, I I know you, you're a mm-hmm. huge fan. I've seen enough episodes while you have them on. So I recognize some of the names sort of thing. It was like, Oh, I recognize that person. Oh, I recognize yeah. that person and kind of get a bit of a, not really behind the scenes scoop, but just sort of seeing them not in such a, a manicured yeah. way of yeah. being on drag race yeah. was, was a fascinating look. So yeah, if you're a drag race fan, this is definitely one I think people are going to enjoy, but it is one that I think you kind of need to be aware of what the angle is a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe you might not notice it right away, but I, as you were saying, towards the end, it definitely became apparent of what the the gist was right. <laughs> of the movie. <laughs> so the last movie we are going to talk about is uh, The Fandom, which was directed by Ash Kreese. I think that's how you spell, you say Ash's last name. If not, I, I apologize, Ash. Well, let me tell you a story. It was always about this thing. It was not about us. And if you asked who we were and could you point at us, they wouldn't know. We never wanted to be celebrities. We'd started an anime club in 1977, and it was the first anime club. But a lot of the people were also into animal characters. Rod and Mark are effectively the grandparents of the furry fandom. They are the ones who helped put together the first furry parties. Uh, so this is an interesting one. This is a this is a documentary about furries. Um, 
And I will fully admit, you know, I, I have this image in my head of, of who furries are. They're, they're people that dress up in animal costumes and have sex. And that's what my, you know, original thought of them was because most of the time they ever get talked about, whether it's on the news or on the internet or things like that, it's never done in a nice pleasant manner it's always kind of done in a deriding way of like look at these perverts sort of thing and so I'll, I, I completely admit I'm guilty of, of thinking that way too and so it's just very interesting to sort of see the the history and the roots of what this community is about a group of people who like artwork but that isn't artwork of an intellectual property it's their own created work that they just want to sort of share with the world and so that was very interesting. And I think, you know, more so than almost any documentary I've seen, I don't think I've seen something about a movement so thoroughly documented with with home movie cameras as I have with this. Usually most right. of the time you'll get like still photos or things like that. And you'll be like, oh yeah, I remember this. But like, this is like really in-depth coverage of stuff that was happening in the 1970s and having the foresight of of people knowing that they should be filming this sort of stuff of, you know, the very first, you know, furry conventions and furry meetups and all that sort of stuff. It was just like fantastic foresight into doing that. Yeah. I think it also helps that they were like that time was kind of like on the cusp of like, like household electronics. Mm -hmm. Like people were getting camcorders and held like cameras and, you know, whatever. And people were documenting more videos at that time too, mm-hmm. just in general. But, um, but yeah, in order to, to be like, Oh, we're going to start this conference and we're going to, mm-hmm. we're just going to document it. We're just going to document everything. Yeah. And, but also, you know, don't not tape over it later. Yeah. Or, you and, know, and keep it, don't keep throw it, it out. Yeah. yeah. So that was definitely interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really not something you really get a lot of, especially with such a sort of a, a niche thing where it's not about like, Hey, these are people that are pre-existing celebrity sort of thing. Yeah. Um, like it'd be different, like going to a, uh, you know, a comic book convention and having home movie footage of like Stan Lee or something like that. Like that's something that you would probably want to keep. Whereas this is like, Hey, this is me and my friends starting this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's, let's film our meeting about talking about how we're, we're going broke, putting on this conference sort yeah. of. Thing. Yeah. Um, what were your sort of, preconceived thoughts and notions of what furries are going into this. Yeah. So I didn't know much about, um, about this group except for stuff that you've told me really. So Mm. I kind of had the same biases. Um, and actually they, there was mention of a CSI episode in the movie, which clicked and I was like, Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. I I do remember that episode actually now when I was watching that and, um, I don't remember much about it, but I remember there being an episode and yeah, I just, I had the same preconceived notion that it was, you know, these people who like getting dressed up and who did some funky things together. But um, I learned a lot from this film and realized that I actually know a bunch of people who feel or felt similar, like especially in high school, feeling kind of like an outcast, feeling like you're kind of alone and nobody knows what you're going through. And so you just draw stuff. You Mm -hmm. draw things that you like. You draw things that, again, is like an outlet for you. And I totally get the concept of like having this alter ego, this persona. Fursona. The the fursona. (laughs) It's kind of like drag, you know, it's something that you can choose to to put on to 
feel 100% comfortable with who you are. It's kind of like a mask, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and you get to be whoever you want to be and have any kind of characteristics that you want and not be judged for it because everyone else feels the same way. Mm -hmm. So it's just like this nice community. And obviously there are facets of communities that, you know, veer off differently and have different aspects of what they take away from getting dressed up or, or creating these drawings with it there. Like in the beginning, it was all about just like, what is it? Anamorphic? No. Yeah. Anamorphic animals, animals with human characteristics. (laughs) Blanking on words. (laughs) And then of course, as it goes on, you get, you know, the more like uber sexualized, like Mm -hmm. hyper feminine, you know, busty pinup type styles so like things evolve things change but there's always the core of it which was interesting to learn about for sure mm-hmm. yeah no I, I i completely agree with with all of that and like it's no different like people have been for a long time you know drawing as kids drawing themselves as comic book characters you know right. they're you know the kid that really likes reading and 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 feels like they're a bit of an outcast because of their interest maybe their comic book hero is that they're like super intelligent and they got like a giant brain or something like that, or, you know, they, you know, they can fly around, whatever it is. Like that, that's nothing new that people are imagining themselves and drawing characters of heightening both characteristics they already have and ones that they wish that they had as well. And so sort of translating that to the animal world, it makes sense. You know, we already put human traits on animals when we're talking about them and describing people. So it, you know, it, it shouldn't shock anyone that, you know, people think, you know, foxes are cunning. So they draw themselves as a fox because they're cunning as well, that sort of thing. Or, you know, they're sleek and agile, so they're more cat-like and things like that. Or, you know, they're they're friendly and they want to be everyone's best friend, so they're like a dog and things like that. So it just makes yeah. sense that they're able to sort of translate those similar human characteristics onto animals and draw themselves that way. And... You know, I just like you, yeah, I, I totally remember in high school remembering, you know, it's it was usually the, the kids that like manga. Um yep. they 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 loved the Japanese, you know, comic books and things like that and would, you know, draw themselves with cat ears on and things right. like that. So like yeah. I definitely remember that being like thinking that was a little bit weird, but like I definitely remember them and like I was friends with some of these people and like they're terrific people. It was just their way of expressing themselves. And so like it shouldn't shock me that there's an entire community and industry based around people that sort of feel similarly. Yeah. And and I too remember that CSI episode. I, I didn't when we started watching the movie, but as soon as that came out, I was like, oh yeah, I remember yeah. that movie yeah. that episode. And like I remember how like weird they yeah. made that out to be yeah. where they're like, look at all these sex perverts yeah. and this murder that happened. And it was interesting in the film, them talking about how the the uh, crew did have like consultants mm-hmm. from the the furry community and what it sounded like was that all of their input and suggestions were kind of ignored and they just wanted to focus more on the weird you know sex cells so that aspect of the community rather than actually following any of the advice that the that the consultants that they had brought on yeah. Which is weird. If you're going to bring on consultants, why are you not going to listen to them? Right. Yeah. That tale is old as time, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in the end, you know, I, I, I loved all the, the home footage that they included, but sort of towards the end, realizing that 
you know, much like a workhorse queen where it sort of has a bit of a narrative that they're following in your, and they start talking about the, the sex aspect a bit and, and, and they just sort of like, just leave it hanging there. And then they're talking about how there is now a small infiltration of you know, the alt-right community joining up and co-opting the furry nature and things like that. And they just sort of leave it there as yeah. much as like, oh, but they're not really welcome here, so we're trying to exclude them. And, and that's it. It's like, well, what what's drawing them to the furry community? Is there a reason why that's happening? What sort of specific instances are, are we talking about here? What is being done to sort of uh, combat that? Because, you know, being a furry is so much about accepting people for who they really are. And then you're allowing people in who are basically there just to discriminate against groups of people. It doesn't really make sense. And they, and they really kind of sidestep actually addressing that in the movie. Just to be like, oh, no, 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 we're against it. And that's it. Yeah. And so it was a little weird. Yeah, that's the problem I had with this film was that I felt that they touched on several different topics throughout the the decades that this has been going on. And of course, each decade or era is going to have its own challenges. And I felt like they had touched on these challenges, but didn't really dive deep into any of them or say how they were solved or how they were being dealt with or what was going on. And I also feel like they were telling so many stories at once unchronologically. And so it felt a little confusing at times. And there was a, you're, you're introduced to a, a lot of different people and you have a lot of different talking heads going on and talking about different aspects and different times that I felt a little confusing and hard to follow at times. But um, overall, I think what I took from it was still really insightful and I learned a lot from it. I just think that it was a little unclear. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with what you're saying, and it's it's almost a bit of a shame that they don't fully dive deep into the different stuff that they're doing. But overall, I think if specifically the historical aspect of this documentary, yeah, is so rich and and you learn so much, and the fact that so many of the people that were key members of the foundation of this community are you know still a part of it was absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. and you know we've talked all about this and didn't really haven't really connected yet why this is playing at a queer film festival but towards the end we get some statistics that say 80% of the community identifies as lbgtq plus which is absolutely fascinating that i did not realize that and it's sort of you know put a kernel in my brain of maybe why this group of people is so misunderstood and so derided. And it's probably due to the fact of rampant homophobia mm. and, and the fact that that's only being sort of addressed in the last few years by, by the mainstream doesn't surprise me if a group this that consists of mostly queer people it doesn't shock me that there's going to be people in the media or the public eye that just want to ignore them and want them to go away. So that doesn't shock me because, you know, anything that has to do with queer art form has faced such an uphill struggle. Yeah. So that was really interesting. And then also learning that 12% of the furry community identify as trans as well when the American national percentage is 0.2%, which basically means if you're a trans person, it's very likely you're also a member of the furry community as well. That's a shockingly high number considering the amount of people that identify as trans in the United States. Mm -hmm. So all that was very interesting to sort of see. uh, And and that's sort of how it's connected where it mostly sort of seems to be people demonizing queer sex. Yeah. Yeah. Actually thinking about it just now, I kind of wish 
or I feel like this would make a really good mini series mm. or like, you know, you're kind of given the overarching subject and topic and each like following episode kind of dives deeper into one of the little topics that they touched on. I feel like that would have been more interesting and insightful than just trying to cram it all into this one film. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Also just side note, those costumes are amazing and so (laughs) well-crafted. Like it's beautiful. That's an art form on its own. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're really stunning to look at. And the fact of like, they're making them so high tech as well. Yeah, there's like 3D printing involved yeah. in some of them, and yeah, the like mechanics behind some of it is yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. So there you go. Those are the those are the some of the movies that we saw during the Vancouver Queer Film Festival. I really enjoyed watching films this year. Um, it was my first time as well covering the festival, and I and I hope to be able to cover it again in the future. But uh, like I said earlier, um, make sure you check out the reviews for these movies that I wrote about. They're a little more not us saying how we felt about them directly, more of a critical look of it, I guess, as, as reviews usually are. Um, but Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about these movies. Yeah, thanks. Anytime. All right. Uh, so you can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And if you saw either any of these movies or anything else during the Vancouver Queer Film Festival, send us an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.